Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcast, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Joseph, which is my grandfather, he was Joseph August Barano. He was a fisherman, basically, and he was out fishing in Cook Strait one day, and a whale surfaced alongside of him and scared the bejesus out of him. And he says... I'm going to get him next year. That humpback whale that nearly knocked Joseph Pirano's oars out of their rowlocks over a century ago did indeed lead him to bigger quarry. Motivated to get even for that incident, Joseph started whaling out of Tory Channel in the Marlborough Sounds in the winter of 1911. The founder of New Zealand's last whaling station and enterprise, Joseph Pirano, revolutionised the industry and is credited with bringing many modern innovations to it, including the first power-driven whale chaser. In the meantime, the rowing boats were still operating, and James Jackson said to my grandfather how you know, ridiculous it was chasing whales in, the, in a very noisy boat and the whales could hear them coming and running away from them. And uh, my grandfather said, well, never mind, your boat will be in the museum when mines are still chasing whales. And that's exactly what happened, because the Swiftshore was Jackson's boat, and she's in the Christchurch Museum. <laughs> so, yes, he, he is only one way to do things, and it was Granddad's way. But most of the people we're with are all whaling descendants, the Nortons, the Keenans, the Jacksons, and the Hibbleys, and... Uh, it, it, it went from there. So a real community? Yes, a real community. Typical of the sounds, though, you know, very wonderful people, but don't ever talk to them about their neighbours. <laughs> <laughs> Joseph Pirano established a station at Fishing Bay on Arapawa Island in 1924, and it became a small community in its own right, with up to 50 whalers and their families living there throughout each winter whaling season. In time, the business came to be run by his two sons, Joe Jr. and Gilbert Pirano. And, like his father before him, Peter Pirano also grew up in the tight-knit community. So it was only natural that he too would join the family business. The island life is the island, and as children, you know, your, your main playground was the beach. The kids used to model themselves on various whalers and gunners and so on and uh, yeah, you see a patch of kelp and you'd harpoon it and that and make model boats and it was just a life you know but, uh, it was wonderful it really was Peter Pirano harpooned his first whale at the age of 14 and with boarding school behind him three years later he was back to the island and in the fleet 
But Peter's day, like the rest of the chaser crews, wouldn't start on the water, but rather from a lookout high above the whaling station. The best time of the day was the early morning, just as the sun broke up on, onto the water and you could, the spouts stood up very plainly. And by that stage you'd have your binoculars on the stand and you'd search for whales and then somebody would see one and, uh, yes, uh, there she blows. Uh, but you had to be careful because if it turned out to be not a whale, you got fined. In the olden days it was a certain number of wax matches. And in the later days, it's been chocolates, a block of chocolates if you're for a serious mistake. <laughs> so this is how the, the, the penalties were sort of dealt to. And how many were there up the lookout? We had three crews, so that would be six plus a, an observer. So quite a group crammed oh, up yeah, there. Oh, quite a group, yeah. Yep. We had a stove and everything there. And so you could have a hot cuppa? Oh, yes. We used to cook, cook a meal on it and boil up a, a whole lot of grapper heads and that sort of stuff eat the eyes in front of the, any tourists that happen to be around. <laughs> we probably, shall we say, we used to take the mickey out of each other a lot and we used to play pranks on each other. Uh, for instance, if you're walking up the track in the morning and you came across a, a penguin, a blue penguin, you'd put it on your arms after it had bitten you and take it up and put it in somebody else's gumboot. <laughs> so that slowed one crew down, no matter what. But this is a sort of carry on. And soldering each other's lunch tins up. You've got nothing to do, you do these things. But when a whale spout was sighted, and of course verified, it was all hands to the pump. The crews would charge down the hill to their boats and race each other out into the open waters of Cook Strait, as demonstrated by this archived audio from the New Zealand Broadcasting Service of a whale hunt with the Piranos in 1955. The driver's come down from the lookout station, the Gillip Pirano, he's come on board, movement to the engine and away we go. Looking out round on the port side, it's back towards the Tory Channel now. There are the line of the three chasers. And it's a very fine sight because down there the other two small boats and the gunners standing, and they look very precarious indeed. And we're looking around, waiting for the whale to come. Then the spout was sighted. Charlie Heavily saw it first. There she is, he said quite softly, and crouched down a little against the surge of power that the driver gives the boat immediately he hears the word. Every time they surfaced, the chasers roared closer, and then we were right up on them, and next time they broke the surface, the guns went off, and the motors were shut down. The driver has got the line, the nylon line, line of the harpoon in his hand, and we're following along the whale, in company with another chaser also. We're following along this whale as it sounds. It goes right down. You can see it's dragging down the bow of this boat, too. And that was really terrifically exciting because both the harpoon guns of this and the other chaser went off pretty well together. Flash from the guns and, and the flaming pieces of wad spurting out and coming back in a cloud of spray as the black whales dived down into the depths and we saw it all from here. The average chase was about three quarters of an hour for a way to go. And what was your, I mean, what was your heart doing at this stage? Well, like the rest of your body, probably, frozen. <laughs> the first three drops of water down your neck was the worst. And what was the feeling like when you successfully caught a whale and you were towing it back in? Was there any um, 
celebration or congratulations back at the factory, or is it just... No, not at all. Right. Not quite, you know... um, it was just part of the job. It was, it was just just doing it. Thing. It was. What was the feeling like if you came back and unsuccessful? Not to worry. What we used to do, and it's the old one of the Italian traditions. What they used to do is salute a whale. And in the old days, they all wore hats, felt hats. This was grandfather's day and dad's day. I've only ever seen it done once. And uh, they're chasing a whale, and they couldn't catch the bugger, and uh, he got away. And they just sort of stopped and saluted. And uh, that's good. It made you feel a bit happier than if you'd caught him. Yeah. So you didn't mind on occasion... Hell no. ...that one would get away? No. We just hope we'd sort of make up for it. (laughs) While an emotive subject, the whaling history of Marlborough stretched over generations and made a significant contribution to New Zealand's economy. Whale oil was used for lighting and lubrication, as well as in the manufacture of products such as rope, paint and soaps. Whale meat was also used for human and pet consumption, and much of the blood and bone byproduct wound up feeding the market gardens of Pukekohe. However, the Piranos were committed to the survival of the whales they were hunting. Their livelihood depended on it. The whalers were prohibited from taking right whales and while they didn't have a quota for the humpbacks, they were dictated to by the factory at Fishing Bay, which could only process three whales a day. Peter Pirano says mothers and their calves were also left alone, as well as any whales smaller than the length of the chaser boats. The fleet would also tag whales to ensure they weren't depleting their own stocks, and Peter says they never got one of their own tags back. Marlborough Sounds whaling peaked in 1960, but then the industry crashed. For a time, the whalers could not work out why the humpbacks were failing to migrate through Cook Strait. The answer, it turned out, lay far to the south of New Zealand. Whaler Charlie Heberley and his son Joe tell of the ruin of a once thriving industry during a Radio New Zealand Spectrum programme in 1996. We were devastated. No, definitely, mm-hmm. definitely. We, as time wore on, we we knew that whaling was going to become history, and um, it was a sad day. You know, there was a lot of devastated whalers. Um, we knew that the Japanese and Russians had got in and and slaughtered the pot of whales that were feeding the New Zealand coast, and we knew that by the numbers that we had spotted coming through Cook Strait, that something had happened. We knew the writing was on the wall and it was a very sad day when the last whale was caught. We got blamed here in New Zealand for, you know, for killing the whales out. Well, let me give you an example. In 1960 was the record number of whales taken in New Zealand. Well, that year, Cook Strait whalers took 226 whales in the season. Well, that same season, the Japanese and the Russians took 42,000 miles down the Antarctic, and that's only what they reported. And uh, by the experience we had in some of their reporting, there was a lot more than that caught. Well, we had a bit of an idea around about 61, the last year that we were catching any at all. The bumper year, we had no idea. We darted quite a few whales, tagged them, and we hadn't got any back, so we thought we were fairly right. We didn't realise the place was getting... Just absolutely wiped clean. How does that make you feel? Oh, quite angry, actually, for the sake of, of saving the whales, really. 
I mean, it was bloody well unnecessary. And it was the way it was done. You know, they had a licence, meant nothing to them. It wasn't just us that suffered over it. The engineering factories and all the transporting and all this sort of stuff. A whole industry died. A whole industry, a big industry for Marlborough. You know, it's like the grape industry. If that did the same thing over three or four days, I hate to think what the result would be. On December 21st, 1964, the last whale was harpooned in New Zealand waters, ending more than 170 years of New Zealand whaling history. But Peter Pirano and his contemporaries weren't done with whaling just yet. A decade ago, a group of former whalers, including Peter, were invited back to the lookout on Arapawa Island to once again spy the massive mammals migrating through Cook Strait. The group are a key part of the Department of Conservation's annual whale survey, assessing the recovery of humpback numbers since the end of commercial whaling. I ask Peter what it is like to be poacher turned gamekeeper. It couldn't be better, really. I mean, it's probably the ideal thing for somebody like myself and Joe Hebley and the Nortons and the Jacksons and sort of so on to be doing this. Uh, I think it's great. And tell me about the project. How did it unfold and how did you come to be a part of it? Well, Joe just rang me up one day and said, how would you like to go whale spotting? I said, how would I like to do what? <laughs> <laughs> when was the last time you spotted a whale? Back in the 60s? Well, yeah, it would be, yes. You know, we've been doing this survey for 10, 12 years. Tremendous. I, I knew that it would be all beyond that then. <laughs> and so you head back to Arapara Island? Yes. And you climb the hill? Climb the hill. Oh, actually, no, we don't climb the hill anymore. We go up on the quad. Luxury. Oh, hell yes. <laughs> like a whole lot of lemming on the, on the mother lemming's back. <laughs> Covered in mud yeah, and in the dark. We're warming our glasses pre-dawn. Sun comes up, the glasses come out. Away we go. And exactly the same excitement. We just don't have to go out there and catch them and kill them. What do you think your grandfather would make? The fact that Pirano, the name Pirano is now associated with, with whale conservation in New Zealand. Oh, I can just about hear him saying, oh, bloody stupid buggers. <laughs> but he'd be right behind it. Yeah. Yeah. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.